Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. My name is Victor Xi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, an MSNBC legal analyst, and the wearer of Jill's Pins, hashtag Jill's Pins. And today's pin is a very special one. It looks like the coronavirus to me, and it's because we have a wonderful guest that is very relevant to COVID. The COVID pandemic has wreaked havoc on our world over the past year and a half. Students were forced out of the classroom, small businesses faced financial ruin, and medical professionals risked their lives caring for COVID-19 patients. We haven't talked much on iGen Politics about the far too many lives lost and affected by the pandemic or the effective vaccines available free for the majority of the U.S. population because we didn't have the right guest until now. But today we do. We are joined by Andy Slavitt the author of the brand new book, Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics, and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. Andy has the perfect resume for writing this book and for talking to us today and informing us. He served as the temporary senior advisor to the COVID-19 response coordinator in the Biden administration, where in addition to advising the White House on COVID-19 strategy, he regularly briefed reporters on the administration's public health efforts, becoming a trusted and reliable source for the latest um, on both the pandemic and vaccines. Before that, Andy was a consultant and then a business executive who served the newly launched ObamacareHealthCare.gov website, which he single-handedly saved, and Then he served as President Obama's administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So we are very honored to have with us today, Andy Slavitt. Thank you so much for being with us today, Andy. Good to be here. Thanks. So we have a lot of things to discuss with you regarding your book and COVID, but I actually want to start with something that I found very interesting in your book, um, or actually in your life, really, which is your path from Wharton to an MBA at Harvard Business to starting a healthcare company as a result of a friend's personal tragedy. And because I think it shows how we all can make use of opportunities that unexpectedly come up and how it can change our own lives. I'd love for our audience to hear about how you got to where you are and what your path was, because it isn't a straight line path. Oh, man, you're talking ancient history now. <laughs> it's um, not that long ago. <laughs> prehistoric days. Um, yeah. The, uh, you know, I, I have um, uh, 1998. See, that is, I bet most of your listeners weren't even alive. Right, Victor? Um, right. <laughs> he wasn't. We, uh, well, no, he was not even thought of. We were um, uh, sitting home one day, and my a friend, my friend called, who was my, my roommate from college. We were both about ten years out of college, and uh, he was experiencing numbness in his left arm. Um, he had just gotten married. In fact, we both just gotten married to delightful um, spouses, and uh, he had just had twin one-year-old kids. And he started feeling numbness in his arm, and uh, he went and had it checked out, and it turned out he had a brain tumor. Um, and mm-hmm. he um, he died. That was in January. He called me. He died uh, just before July 4th of 1998. Um, and, you know, that kicked off kind of a series of events in my life where his his widow and his twins, who were a year old at the time, came and moved in with my wife and I and where we were living at the time in California um, our first year and during our first year of marriage. Um, and as we proceeded to help his widow get back on her feet and help the twins get back on their feet, um, we learned a lot about what it's like to be stuck um, with a lot of medical bills um, in a world where no one cares, they just want to get paid. And um, and the sort of tragedy that we lost. So I, I 
was way before the Affordable Care Act, uh, when not everybody had health insurance. And I started a, a, a business to help people who were uninsured and underinsured. One thing led to another. Um, I always got into health care. And um, when the Affordable Care Act passed, I was actually the one that went into the government uh, and saved it. So I did a lot of work, you know, larger than my friend. But I'll tell you one funny kind of happy punctuation mark to that story since you asked. This last weekend, um, uh, the, the a 24-year-old girl uh, stayed with us at our house, my wife and I, uh, was the same girl that, was, that had lived with us when we were a year old. When she was a year old, she's now out of college. Wow. Um, Jeff's Jeff's young twin uh, daughter Judy, and How she wonderful. is on her way to hopefully becoming a doctor herself. That is wonderful, and it was really for the benefit of Victor and his uh, generation that I wanted to ask that because I think that it shows that you don't have to decide when you're in college or even when you get your master's in business what exactly you're going to do. You didn't start out in the health field. You ended up in it because of a series of circumstances. And I just want people to know that that's oftentimes the best way to find your passion and to do something that is really good. Um, but let's, let's talk now more about your book, which um, identifies some of the key reasons that the disaster that COVID has been was preventable, the title of your book. And, um, and, and incidentally, of course, President Biden has used the term preventable in reference to the Delta variant, saying that it's a, pand- a pandemic of the unvaccinated and it's a tragedy that is preventable. So if you could you know, talk about um, how you came to see this as a failure because of things that were preventable not being done, and if you agree with President Biden that the Delta variant is still preventable from being the disaster that it might otherwise be. Well, look, we, we were going to have a pandemic. That, that, that part wasn't preventable. What was preventable is how we responded to it. Remember, a virus by itself, without humans who spread it, without the cells that allow it to multiply, um, isn't very dangerous. It's only because of human behavior that a virus can become dangerous. And what the book traces here in the U.S. From the, from the early days of when we all kind of discovered things at the beginning of 2020 um, to how politicians spoke to us, to what they told us, um, to how, we, um, how science was dealt with and believed, to even little things like were we, how, how willing were we to, to suffer even minor inconveniences in order to mm-hmm. help save lives. Um, it's just a series of decisions that were made, some by politicians who didn't tell us the truth, like Donald Trump, some by all of us who um, didn't really see a lot of the people who were dying every day, who oftentimes were living in the biggest Parts of the death toll were in farm labor camps and, and meatpacking plants and jails and um, in um, border towns in Texas. And a lot of us don't know anybody in those communities. So even though we were seeing thousands of people die every day, you know, if people felt relatively safe, people felt a little impatient. Like, why can't we get back to our lives? And the result of all of that was there are a lot of preventable deaths. And if, if we would have managed the pandemic in the U.S., in the way that Germany had, and Germany, I think, did a good job, not a great job, but a good job, probably three-quarters of the deaths we had in the U.S. might have been avoided with just a sort of common set of looking out for one another and with a government that wasn't suppressing science but was following science. That is very dramatic numbers, I would say, Um let me ask you about this idea that Delta now is a, because the vaccine is available to almost all adults in the U.S., to anybody over 15, for free, but people aren't getting it, that it is now the people who are in the hospital and dying are the unvaccinated. And so people have been calling this a pandemic of the unvaccinated. 
And there has been some language experts who are criticizing that terminology. They're saying that you can't blame the unvaccinated. You could blame the people who are the purveyors of disinformation, not their victims. And that it turns off people and hardens their position not to get vaccines if you blame them. So first of all, do you think that's what we're seeing and do you agree with that? And is there a better name instead of calling it a pandemic of the unvaccinated, even though numerically that is the truth, uh, what would you call it? Well, look, if you want to stay out of the hospital and you want the best odds to not have the virus do damage to you and your body, travel into your lungs um, and really make it difficult for you to breathe and potentially end your life or um, pass through you to someone else who is more dangerous, then the best thing you could do is get vaccinated. The smartest thing you could do is get vaccinated. There's no question about that. Now, is it foolproof? If you do that, will I guarantee you that you'll never get COVID-19 or you'll never spread it? No. Um, the way the vaccine works is actually quite smart, but it's not like sunscreen. It doesn't prevent the virus from entering your body. What it does is it helps your cells and your immune system win the fight if you do get exposed to the virus. Um, and it prevents the virus from going from your, typically in your nose, down into your lungs. So when President Biden says um, we have a pandemic of the unvaccinated, it's because if you go hospital by hospital throughout the United States and indeed throughout the world and look at who's dying, um, people are, you're much more likely to die, somewhere between 10 and 30 times more likely if you haven't been vaccinated. Mm. Um, and I don't know that anyone should ca call that blame. Um, but we should call though we shouldn't be afraid to call out those facts. Right. Um, we, we want to get into your book later on, but because you are such a trusted messenger on anything related to COVID, as our audience is beginning to see, I just want to clarify a few um, questions around the Delta variant. Um, first, can you clarify for our audience how the Delta variant, I guess, impacts children versus adults, um, and then also the unvaccinated versus the vaccinated differently? Well, what's principally different about the Delta variant and the COVID-19 we saw before is it acts much more quickly within the human body and it creates a much higher viral load. Yeah. So why does that matter? It matters because, um, as we know about COVID-19, the thing that makes it trickiest is it spreads oftentimes before people are showing symptoms or from people who don't show symptoms at all. If it wasn't for that fact, Victor, uh, COVID-19 would be much more manageable because like the flu, we tend to be sick, we stay home, we know we have it. But if, uh, if you're unwitting, if you're uh, unaware that you're um, potentially contagious, that's pretty dangerous situation. So uh, because there's a quicker incubation period, because the viral load's higher, it's much, much easier to spread Delta than it is other, than it has er earlier forms. Um, now, that means everybody is more susceptible to getting it, kids and adults. Um, it doesn't mean that Delta necessarily preys on kids. It just means it's harder for everybody to protect themselves, even people who have really strong immune systems. Um, generally speaking, uh, you know, this is a, vi a virus that impacts you more if you're older or your immune system is troubled. But, you know, make it rapid enough, make it fast enough, and it's going to get more people. And the more people it gets, the more likely it is that it's going to find people that it does some damage to. So that's why Delta is a bit of a, of a new ball game because it's much, much more contagious than previous iterations. Mm -hmm. and, and so at the time of this recording, the Pfizer vaccine has been FDA approved for booster shots um, for those over 65 or immunocompromised. And also Pfizer says it's safe for children as young as five, but that is also pending. Um, 
I guess regarding boosters, um, are there any risks to approving boosters right now? I guess, was the recommendation for only Pfizer and those over 65 immunocompromised the right one? Well, so to, to be thorough, the recommendation was for, as you say, people over 65, people immunocompromised, but also people under 65 who have pre-existing conditions that make them vulnerable or in jobs where they're exposed to the public, like nurses or grocery store workers, et cetera. So it's a pretty broad brush of people who think they're at risk. And the truth is, uh, it is not uh, risky to get vaccinated. It's very safe, uh, boosted. It's very safe. Um, in fact, you know, the way, the reason a booster is important is because all a booster does is it reminds your immune system of what this virus looks like. And if it does it after six months, it's much more effective uh, because then it gives your body a pattern. It says, hey, this isn't a thing that happened one off. It's a far enough time away uh, from one another. Now, recall that we've given this vaccine now across the globe about six billion times. And Could you say that number again, six billion? Six billion times across wow. the globe to a couple billion people. So when people get concerned about side effects or talk about side effects, um, you know, we're not, when something happens with a vaccine, it, it happens in several times per million. That's how rare it is. We're talking billions and billions of vaccines have been given out and with very, very few um, and very manageable side effects. So one way to answer your question is, yes, it's indeed safe. The other way to a answer that question is, is there a downside because getting vaccinated might prevent someone else from getting a vaccine? And I know a lot of people think about that issue. They want to know, should I get vaccinated or should I save that vaccine for someone who might need it more? And we remember the early days of vaccinations when there weren't enough to go around. That's not the case today. We don't have a zero-sum game. Um, there are plenty of vaccines uh, for people who get boosted. So if you qualify for a Pfizer vaccine um, and you should get a Pfizer vaccine, then you shouldn't worry about it much downside there. There's, so Dr. Walensky, she did recommend um, giving a third shot to at-risk workers such as those in the healthcare industry. But the CDC, I think, um, rejected uh, her recommendation. I'm wondering um, if you if you know why that's happening or why the CDC rejected Dr. Walensky's recommendation. It was the other way around. Oh, other way. Okay. They rec there was an advisory panel that recommended to her um, who what the permutations of who should they thought should receive it and who shouldn't. Now they're an advisory panel. Um, she, now to make matters even more interesting. The FDA had 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 they disagreed, they disagreed with the FDA. The FDA had said that at-risk workers should get vaccinated. So um, this this advisory panel didn't support what the FDA had said. She listened to their advice, and of course, it was her decision to make. And she felt that what the FDA had recommended was actually right, yeah. uh, and that the advice from the advisory committee. Um, while valuable, was not unanimous. They were very split. So I think she was very justified in making the decision that she did. So I'm, I'm wondering what you think the next step should be um, in terms of getting children vaccinated um, and, and when you might expect that to happen. Well, as we sit here today, um, we are probably a few days out from Pfizer and, and soon Moderna is submitting their data, their final data on um, the 5 to 11-year-old set, uh, complete with the right dosage requirements. And then I imagine we are um, weeks uh, after that submission. It'll be probably weeks, no more than weeks, before the FDA uh, reviews that submission. The FDA looks at the data that's coming in all along the process, so it's not as if They'll be looking at it for the first time. Um, and so I think we could hope, and I think it's a realistic hope, that we'll see, uh, we'll see approval, could see approval before Halloween for kids. 
That would be excellent. L- let me ask you a, a question along the same lines, which is, as the decision was made about who should get boosters, and it was limited to Pfizer now because the evidence seems to be that the Moderna shot keeps its viral protection at a higher rate. No, you're shaking your head. So no. tell me, no. tell, tell me why not Moderna? Moderna hasn't submitted hasn't submitted yet. They'll right, submit. So- they're they're working out their dosage. When they make their submission, which is expected in a week or two, um, they'll get the same approval. Okay. Well, that, that as someone who got the Moderna, I wanna <laughs> I wanted to know that. But also, uh, as they're deciding who should get it and who shouldn't, is there any reason to say that you could do an antibody test and if people have a high antibody count, so that they are still protected? They shouldn't bother getting the vaccine, or should everybody get the booster when it's approved? Well, I think the evidence suggests that if you've had Delta, um, you and you've been vaccinated, you probably don't need a boost. If you've had Delta and you haven't been vaccinated, um, the data suggests it probably will be helpful for you to get uh, a booster. Um, if you have an had Delta, if you have had prior iterations of COVID, I think most doctors would suggest you should get you should go get both uh, both shots if you haven't been vaccinated, yeah, and certainly a booster. You did you do get a you do get a nice bump from um, natural immunity, and if you've had natural immunity and if you've had some some natural immunity from Delta and you have had vaccines, then you're in the best possible circumstance. Uh, it's, I'm sorry that you had to live through COVID. But at this point, that puts you in a protective spot. Great. So in terms of vaccines, President Biden has introduced new measures to mandate vaccinations. And I wonder if you think he went far enough um, or at least as far as he could. So, for example, uh, immigrants who are in federal custody, he has control over. But Medicaid recipients are state-run programs, so he can't mandate them. Um, he picked companies with 100 or more employees. He could have picked 50. Do you think that he picked the right measures to say you must get vaccinated? So let's just look at the case here. I mean, the, the reality is that there are indeed some Americans that are very opposed to getting vaccinated. But most Americans who aren't vaccinated um, don't feel as strongly. In fact, about 25 million Americans, according to polls, say that um, if they were required to get vaccinated in order to go to work, go to school, or go to a venue and be around people, they would get vaccinated. Uh, so I think they, they these are people that don't prioritize it very much. Many of them are younger. Um, they don't know that they need it. Uh, and, you know, it's, there's a hassle factor. And, you know, after all, if it's optional, why go get a needle put in your arm? So uh, there's a lot of people that with a little bit of a nudge, um, are very comfortable getting vaccinated. And we've seen this, in employ- whether it's in the military or schools or employers or NCAA sports teams, you very quickly get to about 90% of people um, vaccinated. So it's important. Why is it important? It's important because we don't want um, people to uh, have free reign to go into a hospital or a concert and breathe all over us if they're infectious. <laughs> I don't think I care much if someone has a needle put in their arm, but I do care if they're around me right. and make me unsafe or make my mother unsafe. Um, that's not that's not acceptable. So um, I think what he's putting forth is putting forward is very reasonable, very fair. It turns out to be very popular with most Americans, not everybody. And you know, in our society, free society like ours, people are free to speak their minds and protest and um, even to quit their jobs. Um, if they uh, if they feel like they don't want to either get tested once a week or get vaccinated, which is what he called for, um, so the regulations aren't yet published. They're they're being worked on. Uh, you know, we'll we'll see those details. But you know, I have been uh, a proponent, and you know, I was part of the administration, and have been very supportive of the effort that he's uh, he's taking here. It's the right effort. Right. And it seems that business uh, businesses are very supportive because 
It takes the pressure off them and protects their workforce and their customers and will bring customers back because there are many people like me who, if I don't see a store requiring masks uh, and I don't know that people are vaccinated, I'm not going to go back to venues that are like that. Um, And what about colleges? Victor is, for the very first time, he spent his freshman year in his bedroom here in Illinois, but he's now at UCLA, and um, they, the proof of vaccination is required or testing like they did at Indiana University. Um, and I think Alabama did the same thing. What do you think the best combination is for students who are going to be living in dorms, uh, which is close quarters, and being in classes? Um, I spoke to a class today at uh, American University, and they were all masked in the classroom, uh, every single one of them. So what's the best thing for college students? So, so Victor, you're at you're UCLA? Yes. I think it's essential that you beat USC. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm with you on that. I don't follow football closely, but I do agree with you on that. I think that. that's the mandate uh, <laughs> at, at stake here. Um, so, look, I mean, uh, about 900 universities have required vaccinations, and— the thing about vaccinations is they make things fair because, you know, imagine that there's two employers and you know, at two restaurants across the street, one of them requires vaccinations, the other doesn't. You know, some, um, the person who requires vaccinations, you know, they may lose workers to people who are like, I don't want to have to get a shot. And so essentially be, uh, having, what people really want are rules that are applied fairly to everybody. And that's, you know, people don't say they don't love regulations, but the but the benefit of them is they keep things fair. They make, they ensure that everybody follows the same thing. And that way, Jill, if you go to one restaurant or the other, or Victor chooses to go to the UCLA USC football game, um, he, you can go with a great amount of assurance. Now, again, there's no there's no such thing as a sure thing with with a disease that spreads as widely as this, and so that's why people talk about layered strategies. All that is just a fancy way of saying just do the more than one thing. Wear you know wear a mask, get vaccinated, take a test, assure yourself. All of these are very minor steps, and the you know you would have to really convince yourself that this whole thing is a hoax and completely made up uh, to not want to take basic steps to protect yourself. And what's going to happen to the children who are? too young to get the vaccine right now. And even if it gets down to five-year-olds, there's going to be the children younger than that, Um, although they won't necessarily be in school. But we're seeing school boards inundated with protesters saying, I won't let my child come to school with a mask on. And then there are other parents who are saying, I don't want to be in a classroom where not everyone is vaccinated. Or not everyone is vaccinated. The yes. people who said, I will not send my kids to school with a mask, they won. School's closed. So they don't have to send their kids to school with a mask because there's no school because right. too many people got sick, too many teachers got sick. I mean, you know, the, you know t- teachers want to be there to help kids, but they don't want to have to die for it. And, you know, kids who will go to school also want to see their grandparents. So... You know, it's a question of, like, what's too much to ask in our society. Like, you know, we all have a story of this country or, or the country that are, that, that you know, are, if, unless we're Native American, in which case we have our own story of suffering. You know, we all have generations before us who came to this country and had some amount of sacrifice that they that they put forward for us to be here. I bet you've got a story in your background, Jill, and you probably have yes. one, Victor. I have one in my family. You know, my my grandmother lived through two world wars, a ten year depression. She survived smallpox. She uh, survived attacks on the village that she grew up and took a boat to the U.S. when she was a little girl, and. You know, her idea of sacrifice when she was growing up was going four years with coffee rations where she could only have, they could only have one little um, bit of coffee grinds every week. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I don't get my dark roast at Starbucks every morning, <laughs> I get cranky. 
So, you know, we, we, when we talk about, well, I want my freedom from wearing masks, and we talk about I don't want to be told what to do by the government, we forget the only reason we have the, even the luxury to have that conversation is because we have people who came before us that really sacrificed for us. And God forbid we were a generation that had to go to war against Hitler. God forbid we were the generation that had to sacrifice for others. Um, this is not the stuff that we should, we've shown so far we are made of. Now, that's not true of everybody. Many people are willing to sacrifice for their neighbors, but not enough. And that's one of the things I point out in the book, in Preventable, that is just this ongoing theme of if, if we were all willing to sacrifice or inconvenience ourselves just a little bit, we could save lots of lives. The problem is you've got to be willing to, to take a little bit of inconvenience for people you don't know and you've never met. And that requires a level of empathy and imagination and community that I, I fear we've lost in this country. I mean, your, your book does talk about that so well, and it's disturbing because, you know, you do talk about how the Trump administration was inept in handling the pandemic, but then you also make clear that if we had done the right thing as a society to I guess collectively lives would have been saved. So I'm wondering maybe if you can talk a little bit more about that and just the the broader harms of this lack of collective action um, and what that means even for beyond COVID. Yeah. I mean, look, we won't, if we don't care about COVID, then it's hard pressed for me to imagine that we will care about the climate, right? Because the climate taking action to, prevent our planet from warming further, from having more carbon um, get admitted than we can handle. All of these are actions that if we take them now, they'll make the world better 30 years from now, or they'll, they'll prevent the world from being worse than it has to be. But if you're saying, hey, you've got to put on a solar panel, buy a more expensive car, use less water, um, and it's going to, uh, and, and you might not even be able to affect the current weather patterns. Um, then we would be, we, you know, people are going to be hard pressed. But imagine if 30 years ago people had been doing those things. Imagine, you know, when I was in my 20s, um, if we had started taking those actions, then many of the floods we see today in Europe, many of the storms we see, many of the fires we see. All of these outrageous weather patterns are the result of our behavior over decades and decades and indeed centuries. So now that we know this, or now that we know that, um, my, you know that 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 we the the biodiversity crisis that exists on the planet um, requires some amount of sacrifice. Um, are we willing to do it? And some of these sacrifices might be larger. I mean, you know, eating meat is. Um, is, is an example. You know, those are things that, that are more significant changes. I have, it's hard to have a lot of confidence that people are, are going to be willing to do the right things when something as simple as wearing a mask seems beyond the grasp of too many people. You know, so Jill and I, we really agree with you that there are these simple things that we should all agree on as a society collectively. And you were on MSNBC very early on in the pandemic saying that we have in front of us this opportunity, unlike prior generations, my generation has never been called on to make a sacrifice. You know, Jill and I, we obviously agree with you. I suspect that most in our audience also agrees with you. I'm wondering what you're doing to reach those beyond MSNBC um, and to get them to realize that they should also make a sacrifice right now. I do a lot of things with uh, Republicans together um, where we, whether it's going on Hugh Hewitt's show, whether it's going on Fox, whether it's someone like Scott Gottlieb or Mark McClellan and I doing things together to demonstrate, I think, a simple fact, which is none of the stuff at the end of the day affects us politically. And when, when we're long gone, I mean, our political identity will be the least of the most, the least of the things um, that mattered. And I will tell you that um, there are plenty of Republican governors who do a fine job uh, managing the pandemic. It's a challenging thing. 
And, you know, I don't think Donald Trump was a disastrous president at managing the pandemic because he's a Republican. I think he's a disaster because he's a populist egomaniac. And if we would have had George W. Bush or Mitt Romney or Charlie Baker, who's the governor of Massachusetts, as president, I think their pandemic response would have looked quite like almost any Democratic response. Um, so I don't think, I think this has been made political. I do think it is cultural. I do think people have baked this into their identity. Um, and I think we probably have a, um, we have an unhealthy relationship with the word freedom. Um, I think it's almost a fetish that people, that we think people should leave us alone, that there's no responsibility for being part of society. No one promised anybody that. No one promised anybody that you could be a part of society and not have obligations. Of course you have obligations. You have many obligations. Um, you enjoy the fruits of this country. There are laws. There are rules. Now, those rules allow you to prosper and make lots of choices, but it's only because we have the ability to count on one another to, to follow some of these rules that we get to have the life we do. Let's look more at, you, you mentioned the Trump administration, and you certainly were in touch with them in the early stages of the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about who you spoke to in the administration and how receptive and smart you thought they were, whether the lack of response was due to instructions from the top or whether there were internal disputes at the lower level? I mean, Fauci and Dr. Burks was the problem there. What, what, what's your perception of what happened early on in the pandemic? Well, look, let me stipulate two things. One is pandemics are hard things to manage. And the other thing I'd stipulate is that we ought to be pretty forgiving when people make honest mistakes doing the best they can with the information they had at the time. And I think we ought to be pretty generous and pretty forgiving. Where I'm not so forgiving and not so generous is when people make um, decisions in bad faith that knowingly hurt people. And there was just an abundance of that in my interactions with the White House. And I spent time talking with everybody from Jared Kushner to Debbie Burks to, to Tony wow. Fauci to, to a number of others. And so I had a pretty good view. And I interviewed a whole bunch of people that were in the White House verbatim in the book. Um, and look, I think there were I think there were a few deadly sins. The first was just very simply lying to the public. I don't think that's forgivable. So we know that the president knew in early February that the pandemic was going to be bad, that people were going to die, that it was highly contagious that people should protect himself. He had an obligation to walk out onto the, pod to the podium and tell people, be careful, protect yourself, do everything you can. He didn't. He didn't do that. It would be as if we knew that Pearl Harbor was going to get bombed or, nine, or, the, or the Twin Towers and decided just not to tell people. It's an unforgivable mistake. Um, and it wasn't a mistake. It was something he did purposely because he just didn't want any responsibility. He didn't want to be associated whatsoever um, with this. So he lied. The second thing he did is he, he repressed any kind of scientific opinion in the administration that disagreed with him. He either, they either fired, pulled from the media, uh, or otherwise lambasted anybody who, who would be willing to put out any information that was not consistent with his narrative, which was basically that this was a hoax, that it was blown up out of proportion. And there were many scientists who couldn't resist and had to tell the truth, had to tell the public the truth, and they paid the price. People who spent decades in their career uh, doing this. And so he then fit people around him who just believed what he had to say. And I'll tell you what, you, you do not want to be in the middle of something very hard and very complex and be suppressing dissent. It's just too hard to figure out what's going on. And so when you tell people, hey, if you say anything that disagrees with the way I want to look at the world, you're in for real trouble. And, you know, there are a few other countries that did similar things to this, but most countries, most countries did not. They gave it all the best effort possible. And then the last thing I'd say is, you know, and this is something Jared Kushner told me explicitly, 
is that they were going to make a concerted effort to make to put all the blame on the onto the governors for anything that happened. And the the strategy was to allow the president to take credit for opening the country and blame the governors for when people died and it didn't go well. And that was a very cynical strategy. Wow. It was also not a very politically smart strategy because um, history tells us that the leaders who embrace crises, um, even difficult things, but say, you know, I'm here to lead you through the crisis, as George W. Bush did, for example, after after 9-11, they get rewarded for that. Well, you've brought us back in a way to the disinformation, the lies from the administration and the damage that that did and how, um, you know, how can we, any of us, as citizens or as people with podcasts or who appear on television, how do we get the facts out to the audience that says, well, there's metallic magnets in the, the uh, vaccine, I can't have that, or it'll make me impotent, or whatever their reasons are for not taking it. How do we communicate facts when, particularly during the Trump administration, you had a president who totally rejected science and fact? What's the answer to that? Well, I don't think the answer is to add to the din by throwing our opinions out or shaming people. As you implied earlier, uh, you're absolutely right about that. I think that what you do is you just point people to trusted sources. And who do people trust? They trust their doctors. They trust people locally. They, they often trust their pharmacist, maybe a clergy person. So they, get, get the information, get people to reliable sources. Tell them, look, you, you, if you believe something or have a question about something, don't go on Facebook. Don't listen to some joker on Facebook. Ask your doctor. Ask, go on the CDC website. Bring, get them to a reliable source. And it doesn't have to be you because you and I, Victor, we may be trusted by people in our own family, but we may, uh, but, but I, you know, I certainly try not to hold myself up as an authority. I say, go get advice from people who you trust and who can demystify some of these questions and understand that people's questions, if they have questions, that treat them as if they're reasonable questions. If someone's been told that they will not, that they will have fertility problems, or someone's been told um, that, you know, the needle will cause them to get sick or, you know, other, other things, um, Ask them where they heard that from. Ask them if they believe it, and then help them get the information from a reliable source. But you know, understand that that pe people view this as an important decision, and make sure that you tell them it's okay to consider it and take it seriously. It's an important decision, but also um, it's good to make sure people know how you feel. That if they choose not to get vaccinated. Uh, you know, it's going to make you uncomfortable and it's going to make you unlikely to want to be exposed to them. And by the way, not because you don't care about them, not because you're making a value judgment, not because you don't want to be their friend, not because you don't want to be their relative. Don't 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 you don't have to damage your relationship with people. Um, you don't have to make it a value judgment. You can just say um, it doesn't it's not it's not uh, I don't feel it's safe for me. So let's just not do that. But I still care about you. Really important because when we lose that, when you lose that element of things, then people get very defensive. Um, things get blown out of proportion. Um, relationships get, get held and, and people don't want to listen to you. But if you tell them, I care, I care about you. That's why we're having this conversation. Um, you can have a better conversation. That's always a great thing. So I have one last question, and then Victor will have one last question, if that's okay. Um, and you already mentioned about uh, the Trump administration plan to sort of blame the local governors and, and local mayors rather than doing the right thing themselves. And so I, were governors doing things that were very harmful and mayors the same thing um, in certain places? Were they also in some places doing extraordinary stuff because 
They had to, for example, go out and get PPE, if we can all remember back to the beginning when there wasn't even enough protective equipment for healthcare workers, and the federal government wasn't getting it. So individual states had to compete with each other to get that. Um, tell me what you think about that federal-state divide there. Look, I think by and large, I wouldn't say it's true for all 50 governors, but I'd say it's probably true for 47 or 48 of them, maybe 46. Uh, they did the best they could. And now they didn't all do it the same way. Uh, so, some made decisions that others wouldn't, but I, I think everyone was trying to figure it out. I mean, if you say to someone, look, you're going to make a decision, and if you decide one way, it's going to get a bunch of people are going to be sick and some might die. And if you decide the other way, then people who started small businesses 20 years ago, family businesses, might lose those businesses. Which do you choose? Not an easy choice for a governor. Um, and those are the kinds of choices they had to make. And by and large, I think most people tried to make the best choices they could. Now, a few of them didn't. A few of them um, wouldn't look at data, um, denied things, made it more political, uh, acted more irresponsibly. Um, but I don't think that's the norm. Again, I think um, very difficult situation. Most people uh, tried their best. A few people, um, I think, may have. May have uh, by the way, on both sides, um, I don't think. I don't think. Um, I think it was mostly. You know, I, I don't have great things to say about Christy Nome. I don't have great things to say about Ron DeSantis. But I also don't have great things to say about Andrew Cuomo either. All the time. I mean, I think he did some things well, but he did some things that I think. Um, probably he knowingly um, uh, appeared to have done things to cost people their lives. And um, so I think we need to hold people accountable for those things while recognizing that most of the time people were in a very, very difficult situation and most of them tried. Well, recognizing that he, Governor Cuomo, is the one who was held accountable where Ron DeSantis now has the highest death rate, I believe, and hasn't been held accountable. So I'm hoping that there will be accountability for the evil things that have happened in not handling this the way people should have. But, Victor, why don't you go ahead? So when President Biden um, went into the White House, you became senior advisor. Um, can you tell our audience a little bit what, what that entails um, and what your position was within the administration? Yeah, I mean, I joined a team of people that— we're inheriting the um, pandemic response from the prior administration without a plan for them, uh, without enough vaccine production, uh, without any vaccine distribution sites, and with a lot of promises made to the American public about how many people would get vaccinated that just weren't. And so a team of us who um, I think characterized by the fact that they were, uh, all of us, I think, were experienced in government, experienced in working together, experienced in healthcare, um, and most importantly, experienced in managing large scale crises, got, came together um, and um, essentially led the effort to do a few things. One, vaccinate the country as quickly as possible and if, as efficiently as possible. Two, um, begin to communicate with the public in a way that reestablished trust um, and and told people the truth. That's one thing very specifically that I was put in charge of is leading the communication to, to the public. Um, three, helping get schools back open. Four, getting businesses back open, getting uh, more testing um, produced uh, rapidly and, um, and just managing whatever came with the pandemic, including... Uh, beginning to help vaccinate the rest of the world. So, you know, it's one of those monumental tasks. I agreed to come in and do it for 130 days. Um, and it's one of those um, tasks you take on where there's so much to do, you just don't bother sleeping. You don't bother going home. You don't bother doing much else. I got a, I got a place a block from the White House and just basically spent, you know, every day from the beginning of from the middle of January up until the middle of June, um, serving the public and trying to uh, prevent as much loss as possible. Well, we're certainly grateful to you for having done that because the rollout of the vaccines in the Biden administration 
to me was a logistical genius, um, difficult task that got done. And we went from the trauma of knowing there was a vaccine, but that none of us could access it to getting vaccinated easily. So thank you for your public service in getting Obamacare, the website fixed when it was about to fail and for now getting all of us vaccinated. We are grateful to you for that. Well, thank you, Jill and Victor. And, you know, I think um, I'm going to go back to something you said at the beginning of this, Jill, when you were talking to about to Victor and people in his generation about what to do and making up your mind and life and what your job ought to be, et cetera. And, you know, maybe it's as simple as figure out where you can help. Yeah. Um, look at the world, look at, it doesn't have to be as big as the whole world. Look at the world, look at your block, look at your city, look at um, an area of your interest and say, wow, this is a place I think I can really help. Um, and I, and then, you know, if you are able to do that, it actually becomes quite an honor and quite purposeful. Um, and things tend to work out that way um, if, if you can afford to look at the world that way. Um, uh, as, as, as It's not a bad goal at the end of whatever career you have to say, you know, I don't know what else I can say, but I think hopefully at least I can say, I think I helped. And I'm good with that. Yeah, I think for all of my peers and myself, that is such a good piece of advice, especially now when there's so much turmoil and cynicism in politics. Just look in your community, look wherever you are and see, you know, where can I help? That is a wonderful way to end this podcast. Thank you so much, Andy Slavitt. And everybody, please get a copy of Preventable and pay attention to the lessons in that book. It's very well written, very well thought out, as you will not be surprised having heard Andy on this uh, episode of iGen Politics. Thank you all for being with us, and thank you, Andy, for giving us your time. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. <laughs>